0: talk about the Bible and really the the brass tacks stuff about where the Bible comes from. Because I know many of you are on the fence when it comes to Jesus, but really you're you're okay with Jesus. You're okay with God. You're pretty okay with church. But the one thing that's holding you back from being an all-in, sold-out, Follower of Jesus who wears Christian T-shirts and puts the Jesus fish on your car, takes sure you know a Bible to work with you is the Bible like that is the problem that's remaining for you is you don't know what the Bible is you don't know where it comes from you hear a lot of negative press about it, and so you don't want to be that guy, uh, you know, carrying it around and and quoting it word for word because those guys in your experience you know haven't always been let's just say socially uh, desirable, Uh, (laughs) and you're not sure you want to be that guy. So last week we talked about why I believe the Bible is trustworthy and true. This week we're going to talk about, we're going to start by talking about which books are in there, why they're there, how they got there, and then I'm gonna transition this series, today the series pivots, this seven question series, so far we've been talking about very basic beginner level remedial questions that people ask when they're deciding whether or not to be an atheist or whether or not to be an agnostic or you know, whether to be a believer. Today we're gonna to pivot and talk about what happens when you say yes to the, to, to the God question and yes to the Jesus question, then what do you do next? So today we're it's a turning point in the sermon series. But first I want to lay the foundation for that by talking about where we got these books because they didn't just appear out of nowhere. We talked about last week the 39 books of the Old Testament were decided upon before Jesus walked the earth. So there was no controversy around the 39 books of the Old Testament. The Old Testament begins with Genesis and ends with Malachi and if you thumb through your Bible if you have one with you or on your Bible app you can put your fingers on those um, pages and that's, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament begins with Matthew and goes through Revelation. Those 20 seven books of the new testament is where some of the controversy i guess you could say uh has has been you know bandied about lately in the last decade or so with uh dan brown's uh, you know the da vinci code and like every other article on cnn lately is about why the bible's you know uh, contrived and why can 't be trusted and why Jesus never existed, and pretty sure they have an atheist team of journalists at c n n that decides on their <laughs> headlines because it's uh it's pretty I don't know, pretty biased and i uh, i don't know maybe they're trying to offset you know some other right wing news network that won't be named, but like maybe maybe they're like trying to play off each other i don't know what they're doing, man, but when it comes to that faith issue, there's really been a push to make. Uh, atheism uh, or tearing down Christianity uh, mainstream, and uh, we see that a lot, especially when it comes to the Bible. But listen, these books came from somewhere, and they were decided upon by a very intentional process. But I, I need you to know that the, new, the the Christians never intended to have another Bible or another part of the Bible. For the Christians, the Old Testament scriptures seemed like enough; like they didn't know why anyone would ever need to canonize or make official a New Testament. They had letters, they had the Gospels, and they read these letters and Gospels in their churches. By the end of the first century, they knew what their scriptures were, but there was never a threat to the Christian movement that required them to fix those books. So there was never any competition, in other words. Until the middle of the second century, when the Gnostic communities began to flourish, and the Gnostics began writing their own versions of the Gospels, in some of the apostles' names. So there's a Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, there's a Gnostic Gospel of Philip, there's a Gnostic Gospel of Mary, even um, the mother of Jesus. And and so the the but these Gnostic Gospels completely different in terms of genre, like. The Gnostic Gospels read like somebody got high and said, I'm going to write a story about Jesus, and it's going to be awesome. Like, that's what it sounds like. I'm not being, like, just mean about it. Just go read it. It's 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 interesting um, reading. And so it was only then that those threats began to emerge, and, and non-Christians started going, wait, are those Christian scriptures that the Christians said maybe we should fix this New Testament too? And so for most of the New Testament, um, I'd say 25, 24, 25 of the New Testament books were were you know, beyond the pale, there were no controversy. Um, and this is how these um, books were decided. There were four criteria that were used to, describe, uh, to define uh, the New Testament. The first criteria for deciding which books belong in the New Testament was usefulness. And usefulness in terms of, does this book or this letter help us introduce the world to Jesus? That was all the church cared about, was making Jesus known to the world. And so if a letter, helped do that then they included it if a letter or a writing or something didn't help do that or if it muddied the water or confused people then the church rejected those things well before by the way well before the canonization of scripture that came later by that time the church had already said these things don't belong because it's not useful or helpful to us in terms of introducing people to jesus the second criteria, criterion, singular for criteria. I know my English. Second criterion of uh, what, what, was, uh, what went into the New Testament was consistency. Consistency of message. So the New Testament the, the New Testament Christians, they wanted to keep the church on message. And the message of Jesus was that salvation comes from God alone. Salvation is by grace through faith. That's how we are saved. The grace of God meets us and we act by faith. And that's where salvation happens. And so if there were any writings that went outside those lines or said salvation happens some other way, or you can earn your salvation by doing good stuff and just being a good person, that's enough, then uh, the church rejected that. That's not what Jesus said. And so there was one book that ended up in the New Testament that was the product of, or the result, or I, I want to say the, the subject of some controversy. So the James uh, letter was accepted a little bit later than most of the other New Testament books. Because in James, uh, some of the early Christians had some concerns that James cared too much about what you do. As part of your salvation he said what james really said is that you've got faith that's great but if you're not putting it to work then you don't really have faith at all and james is just saying something very true that if you have faith it's bound to be kinetic if you really have faith you're going to do good works he wasn't saying that your good works um make you saved he was just saying if you have faith this is what authentic faith looks like but it took the church a while to warm up to james for that reason. Now the reason James was eventually accepted and and universally accepted today is because of his authorship. And that was the third criteria that Christians used to piece together the New Testament books. Who wrote these books and when? And how close were they to Jesus? So James was Jesus' half-brother. That's that's a pretty good resume for a New Testament book. They weren't going to keep Jesus' brother's book out of the New Testament, right? He he knew Jesus better than anyone else. He got noogies and wedgies from Jesus probably his whole life, like Jesus was his big brother, right? So you're not going to keep James out of the New Testament. And so James got in. Another book that um, was really widely accepted but um, had some question marks around it is the book of Hebrews, um, which is a letter and it's phenomenal in form, phenomenal in substance, but nobody knows who wrote it. So it was the subject of some question, but because the other three criteria proved Hebrews belong, the question of Hebrews authorship was not enough to keep it out of the New Testament. Finally, uh, we had the, uh, the issue of acceptance. Acceptance just means how many of the churches were reading these letters, reading these books, um, in their worship services. So by the end of the first century, we have it on pretty good authority that by the end of the first century, most of the churches were reading the memoirs of the gospels, the memoirs of the apostles, which were the gospels, the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, and, uh, the writings of John. So, uh, you know These were already being read as scripture in Christian worship services being accepted. Into the second century, when the Gnostic Gospels were being written and, and circulated, the Christian churches rejected them from the very beginning, and so they didn't pass the acceptance test. These were the four criteria, usefulness, consistency, authorship, and uh, acceptance. Um, when we uh, look at scripture, this is how we get these four books. Now, there's a lot of negative hype about this process. A lot of negative hype about the outcome of this process. The Bible, you've heard all the negative hype. You've heard all the noise about the Bible. You got friends that talk about the Bible like it's the worst thing ever written. You might have professors that have talked about the Bible like it's archaic, that it's inane, that it's backwoods, you know, like it's something smart people don't believe. You've heard the Bible is anti-anything fun. You've heard the Bible is anti-sex. You've heard the Bible is anti-drinking, anti-dancing. You've heard the Bible is anti-women. You've heard the Bible is pro-violence. You've heard the Bible is, is uh, you know uh, pro-bigotry, pro-slavery. You've heard all these things, but I just want to ask you really honestly here, have you ever gone to the source to see for yourself? Because you know, you can say a lie for long enough. Enough people can say a lie for long enough that it becomes accepted as true. My suggestion is that you go to the source. Because people can talk all day about what they assume the Bible is against, but I want to tell you what the Bible is for. Because the Bible is for much more than it is against. The Bible is for diversity. The way the Bible came together was intentionally diverse you know that in you know compared to just about any other holy book or sacred text where uh, the, the sacred writings are brought to the people by one man. You kind of have to trust that one man's story. Like, he found some tablets in a field in Rochester, New York, and, you know, it's like some language you never heard of. Like, or, like, you got to trust one guy that was on a mountain. and I swear I saw God up here. You guys just trust me. Or you got to trust some guy who was out in the wilderness and, and, you know, had an experience with God and comes back. And, and that's it. Just trust me. And then suddenly he's like at the center of this and all the power and all the money and all the women and like all, that's how it always happens. With the Bible you've got something completely different happening, truly unique. Over forty different voices in different places, different times, speaking different languages from different perspectives, telling different stories, all included in the same holy book. There was no effort to whitewash or streamline the Bible when it came together. There was no effort by some factions to say, we don't really want that guy's voice in here. You know, we don't really want Ecclesiastes. It's depressing. You know, there was none of this, none of that stuff going, we don't want Song of Songs because ooh, wow, it's too racy. Like that they included stuff that made people uncomfortable there was a diversity of voices there's a diversity of gospels we have four gospels about our main character Four different stories from four different perspectives, and they don't always line up. Man, if we wanted to manipulate people, Christians would have done away with three of those Gospels a long time ago. Or at least, like, made them into one, you know, like, to make it one seamless story so somebody couldn't say, wait, 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 he gave the Sermon on the Mount over there, but it's the same sermon, and it's not on a Mount. It's on a plane over here, you know, and, and like, why? Why is it different because we believe and cherish the diversity of experience, the diversity of voices that come to the table, and we are not here to whitewash the story. We understand the human element of the story God came to tell. We're going to tell it. We're going to let diverse voices tell the story of God. So in the Bible, you'll find all kinds of heroes. You'll find male heroes. You'll find female heroes. That book that everybody says is so anti-women is so progressive on women's issues that I can't even count the number of strong heroic women who hear the voice of God and respond accordingly. And these are not like the virginal like sweet girls waiting for their prince to show up. These are some kick blank girls that are like ready to just take the world by storm. And God honors them. You've got young heroes and old heroes. You've got conservative voices and liberal voices. You've got it all in the Bible because the Bible is a document, a story that treasures diversity. The second thing I wanna say the Bible is for is beauty. We talked a lot about this last week. I don't wanna spend too much time on this, but listen, 35% of the Bible is poetry. That should tell you something. Poetry is art. Poetry is beauty. In some ways, poetry is song in the Bible. You've got art, music, poetry. You, you've got uh, romance. You've got sensuality. You've got sexuality. You've got a love of creation. You've got this kind of environmentalism, which you're not supposed to talk about in Houston. But yeah, it's in there. Like you've got environmentalism. You've got like cherishing of creation. You've got getting caught up in wonder and awe. Because the Bible is for beauty. The Bible is for justice as well. The writers of the Bible understood the world as a messed up place and the enemy, the devil, Satan, whatever you call him, he has a stronghold, a foothold in this world for now. But the reason, the reason why we, in, we even know what injustice is. The reason why we can identify injustice when we see it is because we've been created with uh, an inherent knowledge of justice, capital J, big J, universal, understood justice. We know what justice is. We know what right is. We know what wrong is because we know what right is. We know what injustice and wrong are as well. So we believe from our worldview that the reason you know injustice when you see it, the reason injustice is not relative to any country's set of laws. The reason injustice is not relative to any continent's natural resources. You know, people don't starve in Africa because it's Africa. You know, it's an injustice and we know it when we see it. It's not fair. Why? Why does that affect us? If we're just like evolved and strong, strongest survive, survival of the fittest, why, why do I care if someone's starving on another continent? Because it's, in, it's injustice. Because I've been created in the image of a just God. And I've got that stuff in my DNA and I can't help it and neither can you and you know it. And it comes from Somewhere. We have to think these things through. The Bible is for justice. Finally, most importantly, the Bible's for Jesus, and I know that's obvious, (laughs) but uh, listen, guys, the Bible's for Jesus. It's because of Jesus. The Bible tells the story of Jesus. If there's a part of the Old Testament you don't understand or you struggle to accept about the Bible, then start with Jesus and read that part of the Bible through the lens of Jesus and say, how does Jesus make sense of that? How does Jesus redeem that? Or how did that awful thing make a way for Jesus to come to the earth? Right? How does Jesus' story fit? Because Jesus is the plot twist in the story of the Bible. Jesus is what makes sense of all the stuff that troubles you before it. So the Old Testament's a bunch of foreshadowing and, and table setting for Jesus. The stuff after the Gospels is the conclusion or the resolution of Jesus. You have to approach the Bible through that lens, <clears throat> through using Jesus as uh, your, your lens. So the Bible. It's about diversity, beauty, justice, and Jesus. The Bible is for those things. More than anything else, I want you to write this part down. The Bible is a story about God, and its purpose is to make God known. The Bible is a story about God, and its purpose is to make God known. That sounds very simple, but it's very complex and it's very important that we believe God wants to be known. We believe God, the artist, wants to be known for his masterpiece we believe god wants to be known by his subjects we believe that god wanted to be known so badly that he knew the best way to be known by us was to become one of us living among us so that's what he did and the story of jesus the story of the gospels the story of the bible is all about god wanting to be known by you that is why jesus came now some of you have a sense of that, but you still remain uh, static in front of that obstacle uh, of the Bible. Uh, You've been thinking maybe about saying yes to Jesus, yes to God, yes to church, but you still are not reading your Bible. Maybe you don't even own a Bible. Maybe you do somewhere, but you don't know where it is. (laughs) Maybe it's gathering dust on your bookshelf somewhere. I I was thinking this week about my grandfather who carried his Bible everywhere that he went. If you have a grandfather like that, every Monday morning he would go into Texarkana, which was a 30 minute drive, we called it town. He went into town and he went to McDonald's and he sat at a table with his buddies and they all brought their Bibles. And he had that, one of those big old leather King James Bibles with the gold leaf around the edge. And he had, you know, like the little inlet, like little letters on the edge, like where you can find, you know, Lamentations. If you don't know where Lamentations is, L-A-M right there. You just flip to it. Like, I don't know what happened to those little handy tools, but uh, he used to have one of those. And you know, highlighted everywhere, written in, pages falling out. he went and he would pop that Bible down in McDonald's and he would sit. And they would study the Bible together. And then they'd talk about Fishing or something else, you know, whatever else uh, old guys uh, talked about at McDonald's. Um, My grandfather and his boys, they used to memorize scripture. They used to know scripture. They used to be proud to know scripture. They used to be proud to carry their Bibles around, even to work, even in their car, wherever they could. They took their Bibles with them, and they memorized. I don't know when Christians stopped memorizing verses. I can't think of a more, uh, I don't know, accessible tool for us if, if you're able to memorize a verse a day or at least a verse a week so that you have it internalized. But my grandfather used to be able to just rattle off whole chunks of Scripture by memory, even when his, when his brain started to go. You can memorize Scripture and recite it. But times have changed, haven't they, like, That was a whole generation of people that knew the Bible. For that generation, many of them, their first stories to read were from the Bible. The first songs to sing were about the Bible. Times have changed. Since the 1960s, I think, biblical literacy has been in free fall. There are all kinds of surveys done from Gallup uh, to a group called Barna that, that researches things in America. And they found that 45% of Christian adults in America know all four Gospels. Only 45% of Christians know all four Gospels. 60% of Christians can't name more than five of the Ten Commandments, which explains a lot, actually, uh, because you don't know them, then are you even responsible for breaking them? Like, are you even, like, accountable, you know? Like, ignorance is bliss, right? 55% of high school seniors believe Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. 15% of Americans said Billy Graham preached the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Y'all know he didn't, right? Like, okay, a little less of a reaction than I'd hoped for there. I wanted to make sure. Uh, 12% of Americans believe Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. That one makes me really sad. That one makes me sad. But to their credit, I will say, to their credit, 82% of Americans knew that the verse, God helps those who help themselves, is a Bible verse. But it isn't. That's the only problem. It isn't. God helps those who help themselves nowhere, nowhere. Nowhere. In the Bible, and pretty much contrary to most of what the Gospels about. <laughs> so, uh, 82% of Americans—they're uh, totally wrong. Now, I would venture to guess that our society has never been as biblically illiterate as it is today. You know, uh, there's been an effort for decades, and I don't mean to sound like Chicken Little or a conspiracy theorist or like a. Uh, like a sidewalk preacher on the milk crate, you know, like tell everybody they're going to hell. But listen, there's been a conspiracy theory, uh, you know, among among secularists, especially in some academic institutions, uh, to expel religion and faith uh, from the public sphere. To quarantine faith outside of the sphere of politics and outside the sphere of government, outside the sphere of education, outside the sphere of science and, and enterprise. And they said it was because of the separation of church and state. You know, when I was a kid, that was a big deal. Like, you can't, uh, you can't pray, you know, at school or whatever because separation of church and state. Uh, and they made the case that separation of church and state was about se- uh, protecting the state from the church. And protecting the government from religious influence. But any honest historian will tell you that the idea for the separation of church and state didn't come from the state. It came from the church that never wanted the state to get the the idea that it could meddle in church Affairs, go home and Google Roger Williams for me or just go, do it now. If you're bored, and I'm sure some of you are super bored, just Google Roger Williams and you'll find some interesting stuff there about the origins of the separation of church and state. But that's not the story that some secularists have told us in the past couple of generations. They said it was to protect the government from the church. And they got what they wanted, right? Secularists got what they wanted. They got a society free, finally, from biblical literacy, from biblical knowledge. And at last, they convinced us that secularism is about education, secularism is about facts, secularism is about knowledge and truth, but faith, well, faith is, it's nice, but faith is believing in stuff that you know isn't true. Faith is believing in stuff in spite of, of all the evidence to the contrary. Faith is, uh, you know, tradition or faith is culture, but faith is not about truth, it's about feelings and superstition. And you know they promised us, they promised us that life would get better once we got the Bible and all those crazy people that believe it out of the way and quarantined. They promised us that America would become a more civil society, a more sophisticated union. Once we got rid of all those old, outdated, antiquated thoughts, once our kids were no longer learning those songs and those stories first, they promised us things would get better. And Once again, if I had a milk crate, I would stand on it, but man, I, I can't help but notice the correlation between biblical illiteracy and other statistics we see in our society, like the more biblically illiterate we get, the more we seem to be getting divorced. The higher the divorce rate gets and the higher the single parent household rate gets and the higher the incarceration rate gets and the higher the national debt gets and the greater the proliferation of porn becomes, and the greater the scourge of human trafficking becomes. I am honest, I can't prove to you that biblical illiteracy had something to do with that. I just know it did. I know it. I know that it's true. We took something we used to orient our lives around and we quarantined it behind church walls, we lost our sense of direction. Entire generations have been told, including the youngest generation among us, you've been told. You can have your knowledge over here and you can, or you can have your faith over there, but you can't have both at the same time because faith is believing in what you know can't be true. And we believed that kind of lie. For too many generations, we believed that lie. And so even Christians, we tried to cordon off our faith, didn't we? We had our work life and even our family life and our social life over here. But over here, we kept our little spiritual life separate. So nobody would think we're weird and they'd keep inviting us to parties. And we could still drink and nobody would say anything. But then like over here, we said, I'm sorry. And then we just, you know, went back to went back to being Christians again on Sundays. And I I think... That's what it's looked like for us to take that bait. A University of uh, Harvard professor uh, wrote an article recently uh, uh, insisting that the university remove a paragraph called Reason and Faith from its general education program. He said we must never juxtapose the words reason and faith, for that, for that makes it sound as if faith and reason are parallel and equivalent ways of knowing, and we have to help students navigate between them. But universities are about reason, pure and simple. Faith, believing something without good reasons to do so, has no place in anything but a religious institution. And our society has no shortage of these. If we could stay here for a second, Julie, let's let's keep this slide up. I want you all to pay attention here. Do you see how quickly and how easily he lumps all religions into one little category? Do you see how this happens all the time? Do you see how we've gotten to a place in our culture? That's where we are now, right, where all religions are basically the same. They all say the same things. They all, you know, the same different paths, going to the same place. They all have the same truths, but ha-ha, truths, you know, in those religions. And, and that's kind of where we are now, whether it's Sunni or Shia or Protestant or Catholic or Scientologist or Seventh-day Adventist, they're all the same, it's what people think, at least. Some of you all might not. But that's what people think out there. I've been going to the same salon. I was told by a very masculine man I shouldn't call it my salon. I have to say the salon near my house so that I can keep my man card. CJ, is that work? Yeah? Good. Thanks. All right. Thanks, brother. So uh, the salon near my house, I've been going. Uh, And and every time I go, they ask me about my church. And I see it as this evangelistic opportunity to share about how great my church is. I tell them about the story. I give them the website. And I've been thinking recently, man, I am making some inroads with this agnostic hipster community in Montrose, man. And I picture them sitting with all of y'all, like, pierced through and, like, tatted up, just sitting here drinking coffee and talking about Jesus and just loving it. Like, I imagine that's the future for these agnostic hipsters who cut my hair. About the 20th time I went there, this was a few weeks back, 20th time I went there, getting a haircut, just talking about life. And the girl who cuts hair next to, next to the place, next spot over, she says, so there's a question we've been meaning to ask you, but nobody wanted to ask you. But I just, I, I got to know. And so they told me I had to be the one to ask you. I just got to know, do any of your friends have multiple wives, like on Sister Wives? And I said, I said what? And she said, "You're Mormon, right?" And I, all that work, you know, all those, all those forty-dollar haircuts. I just saw them. Just could have gone to Sports Clips and watched Sports Center. Paid twelve ninety-five or whatever, you know. Like, thought I was making progress. She said, "You're Mormon, right?" I said, "I'm Methodist." And she goes, "Is that different from a Mormon?" You guys, it's another eye-opening moment for me. But if you're out of touch with how all religions have been lumped into one and nobody knows the difference or cares to know the difference, you need to get out more. Go to my salon. They'll show you. I mean, the salon near my house. And they'll show you and tell you uh, just how much misinformation is out there. Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, he said this. He said, the biblical stories know absolutely nothing of blind faith or leaps of faith. Such leaps are pure fantasy imposed upon those stories and upon the religious life by the prejudices and tortured turns of modern thought. The result has been to undermine the foundations of faith in knowledge. I'll read that again because this needs to sink in. The result has been to undermine the foundations of faith and knowledge and to leave the teachings of Jesus and his people along with those of all other religions hanging in the air with no right or responsibility to direct human life. That also explains how so many people can now say all religions are equal. What is meant is that all religions are equally devoid of knowledge and reality, or truth. What he's saying here is that the Bible is like no other religious book, and not all religions are created equal. What he's saying here is that the Bible is no touchy-feely, wishy-washy, self-helpy book. It's not about blind faith. It's not about knowing all this stuff about the universe, but believing this anyway. The Bible has never been about blind faith. Faith has never been about believing in something you know can't be true, like that professor said. That professor, who, by the way, has a name on his paycheck, Harvard. Harvard is named for a reverend, an intellectual Christian reverend named John Harvard, who donated 400 books from his own personal library to start the Harvard University Library. It was Christian intellectuals who knew God they didn't just believe in God they didn't have blind faith or take a leap of faith and say I know it can't be true but woo! like they knew God they knew him they knew him and because they knew him they founded universities like Harvard where people could learn more because the more you learn the more you know God and that distinction between knowledge and faith was heresy to people like John Harvard and it should be heresy to us to us as well now the bible is very clear that faith is assurance faith is conviction as it says in hebrews chapter 11 the faith chapter it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for faith is the conviction of things not seen faith is not Maybe it's true. I don't know. I'm going to go with it. You know, faith is knowing. It's being convicted that God is real, that Jesus is God, and that you are his. Job, when his whole life was falling apart around him, Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. The apostle Paul wrote to his friend Timothy, I know the one in whom I trust. Not I believe in him or he might be up there somewhere or I think he hears my prayers. I know him. I know him. Peter says in his second letter, may grace and peace be yours in abundance in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the true knowledge. Not just faith, knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. It is knowledge that sparks faith Faith and knowledge are nothing apart from one another. Peter also says that Christians are to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the Bible says, it makes an audacious claim, the Bible says you can do more than just believe in God. The Bible says you know God. Not just you can maybe know God if you live a good life. You know God. You already know him. You know God. God is real. You probably know by now Jesus is God. And you know that that knowledge bears some implications, some consequences, and so you're afraid to admit that you know. Now, for two years at the story, we've been talking about doubts. For two years, we've been fielding questions. For two years. I've been building sermon series around those questions, around those doubts. We're going to continue doing that because I want everybody that comes through those doors or every new listener online, I want everybody to know their questions are always welcome. And that questions can be good, doubts can be good, as long as you don't get paralyzed in that stasis, that doubtful place where all you ever want to do is doubt. And unfortunately, that's what I see sometimes. Some of you have been with us for a while now, Some of you have been asking the same questions over and over again. And I'll preach sermons about it. And you'll be like, but but what about this? And I'm like, we just spent six weeks talking about it. And you said you understood. Some of you ask the questions not because you don't have the answers. God gave you the answers, but doubt is so much more comfortable and convenient than knowledge is because knowledge is power, and power always yields responsibility, and some of us are just so afraid to wield that responsibility that we say we don't know when you know. You know who God is. You know God is just. That's why injustice makes you angry or makes you cry. You know God is good. That's why evil is repulsive to you. That's why you know evil when you see it. You know this life matters. That's why you feel shame when you're not living it as if it matters. Because you know, you already know There's a guy that uh, calls this church home, and he uh, is in his late 20s, here almost every week from a very wealthy family for most of his life. He's been known as a Playboy. His Instagram feed looks a little bit like a GQ magazine uh, when you go through it. He's traveled the world. He's slept with dozens of the world's most beautiful women. He's eaten all the finest foods. He drank all the finest whiskeys, like all all of them. Like he drank <laughs> drank drank them all. Uh, and uh and, and, and one time last year he, he fell for the wrong girl and that girl walked him through the wrong door and he found himself in a worship service in that gym across the parking lot Something spoke to him that day, and a few weeks later, we had breakfast together at his club, where he told me that he wanted things to change, and he knew that he wasn't living the life that God called him to live. He said, "I've always known God was there. I always prayed to God when the sins mounted up, and I had to confess to somebody, and then he confessed to me that he'd spent his life running from the truth. And he said, "I'm tired of running. I'm ready." And he's been following Jesus ever since. And some of you are some version of that guy, maybe a little less GQ version of that guy. Some of you are right where he was. You know God is there. You pray to God when it's convenient or when you just have to, but you're still in that in that place, you're still afraid to come out of that Christian closet because I'll admit, in 2017, the Christian closet is the scariest one to come out of. That's the one you get judged the most harshly for coming out of, is coming out with your Bible and saying, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm just like my grandpa, I'm one of those guys now, sitting at McDonald's in the high socks, talking about the Bible. That's mean, you know, nobody wants to do that, but man, how long are we gonna stay paralyzed in doubt? When you know You knew long ago and you know today. I told y'all I love the rodeo. And I went to uh, the rodeo a couple weeks ago and uh, they they interviewed a cowboy on the big screen at the rodeo and a little kid was interviewing the cowboy and the cowboy was, he was, Handsome, like oh, cowboy's all cowboys alright. So I was, I was hoping my wife wasn't super, like uh, you know, attracted. I was wiping the drool off her chin and all this stuff. And like I was listening to, I was listening to the cowboy talking. The kid said, "When did you decide to become a cowboy? When did you start riding broncos?" And the cowboy said, "You know, I used to be afraid of those broncos." The cowboy said, "When I was a kid." I was afraid of the Broncos, and so my daddy knew that. My daddy put me on a sheep instead, and I used to, I started my rodeoing by mutton busting. He said, mutton busting just like all those kids are about to do. And that's how I started. He said, but then I started growing up. I started getting bigger, and the sheep started getting giving up. Like, I was, too, I was too heavy for those sheep. And my, my daddy knew it, and I was breaking sheep's legs, and I, he picked me up off the sheep, and my daddy made me, put me up on the Bronco, and I started riding the Broncos just like I rode those sheep. Now listen, I'm not your daddy, unless Joel and Cohen are here somewhere. I'm still your daddy, but I'm not your daddy. But listen, y'all are breaking some sheep's legs. Like you got, some of you, you've been riding those sheeps a little too long, right? You got to, You got to graduate here. Some of you have been waiting and just getting heavier and heavier in your doubt when you know what the truth is, but you're just afraid to take that leap to the next level. And I'm telling you, for some of you, it's time to make that leap. For some of you, it's time to cowboy up, like that cowboy said at the rodeo. For some of you, it's time to grow up and grow a spine. And have some convictions and live by those convictions and be known by those convictions. Even if you lose your old reputation, I'm telling you, on the other side of it, there is hope, there is meaning and purpose. And God will meet you there with such joy. All it takes is the first step. And often I don't offer this. We've never really done this that I remember. But I'm just going gonna, gonna to say a prayer in a minute. And if you're one of those folks that have been on the fence and you've been riding sheep for too long, and let today be the day that something changes. And you can just quietly or even just in your head repeat the prayer. I'm about to pray. I'm going to ask everybody to close your eyes. Even if you're not going to pray this prayer with me, just give others around you some anonymity because this could be a big moment for one or more people in this room right now. And we want to honor that. And if you're right there, ready to break free from that stasis of doubt, pray this prayer with me. God, I am tired of running. I'm tired of hiding behind my doubts. I'm tired of being a coward about my convictions. I believe in you. But now I want to know you. And I trust you to meet me where I am. In Jesus' name, amen.